The first billionaire in modern history was a man named John D. Rockefeller. If you remember American history, you probably studied about him. His fortune was built in the fledging oil business. Um, his companies were broken up by the United States government in the early 1900s, but you still know them because some of them survive. Companies like Mobile Oil, Exxon, Chevron, all were part of John Rockefeller's empire. And John Rockefeller at his death was estimated to be worth about $1.4 billion. And that's a lot of money. But of course, you're thinking in terms of Mark Zuckerberg terms. And so just to kind of give you a comparison, um, if you put that $1.4 billion into today's money, uh, that would mean that Rockefeller was worth about $400 billion, or about three times what jo uh, Mark Zuckerberg is worth. So when Rockefeller died well into his 90s, uh, two men were talking. He was a celebrity in his day. Two men were talking about him, and, and one man asked the other, how much do you suppose John Rockefeller left? And the other man replied, all of it. Because that's really what happens. Nobody takes it with them. Now, I know you, you, you're thinking, well, I, I'll never be a billionaire, but can I just give you some informa interesting information, especially for students? Most of the people in this room will be millionaires. Most of you will be millionaires. And let me show you how the math works. If you earn 15 bucks an hour and you work a 40-hour week for a living and uh, you work for 40 years, you're going to earn one point two. Four eight million dollars in your lifetime. Now, and here's the reality: a lot of you do a lot better than that. And so, in your lifetime, you're going to handle over a million dollars. And my question to you is: What are you going to do with it? What is your financial legacy going to be? And that's the big question I want to put before you. Even if you're not a believer and you're listening to this message, I think it still applies. What will your financial legacy be? So I was talking with some friends of mine, and one of them had a father who passed away, the last surviving parent, and they had the task of going through all of the father's stuff. And the father was a hoarder. Now, not in the sense that you have seen on TV. I mean, his house was okay, but he had kept things through the years, and he had this big barn behind his house. I knew where he lived. I'd seen the barns, kind of almost as big as the house. It was just full of stuff, old cars that he just didn't run anymore, and he, he left them there, uh, uh, VW Bug. Uh, he had a warehouse downtown that's filled with furniture, just all of this stuff that he had. And so I, I just, I met this couple casually walking down the street one day and I said, well, how's it going? You know, I know you're having to sort through all of your dad's stuff. And they said, oh, it is so tough. I said, because we have to go through everything. We don't know what we'll find. We went through his old truck that hasn't run in 10 years and we found a pistol. No surprise, right? <laughs> he said, then we looked in the glove box and we found $2,000. Wow. I said, do you need any help going through his stuff? <laughs> but here's the thing. This guy who had hoarded all this stuff, how much did he leave behind? All of it. All of it. Now, the passage we read today uh, in 1 Chronicles 29 is about King David 
and he is close to death, and he knows this. So he is thinking about his financial legacy. Now, a little bit of background. You may remember that David wanted to build God a temple. So far, the tabernacle, which had been built uh, centuries before, had been patched and repaired, patched and repaired, and it's still just a tent. And David says, I'm living in a house. Should God live in a tent? He wants to build God a temple. And God says, no, you can't do that. You're a man of blood. And you want to go, why? Why can't David do this? Remember, in David's time, kings built temples to celebrate military victories. It was a way of saying, look how honored I am by God that I got to win. And God doesn't want David to build this temple because he doesn't want people, he doesn't want people to think that he is just a God of war. He's also a God of peace. And his house will be a house of prayer for all people. So it will fall to David's son, Solomon, to build the temple. And David's thinking about this, and this is where chapter 29 starts in verse 1. David says, my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, there's two things in this verse. The first is he realizes his son Solomon is inexperienced, doesn't have the life experience to actually build this building. So this is a question to every parent in the room. If you've got kids, I want you just to just kind of respond. How many of you parents in the room think your kids have enough experience to make good decisions in life? Apparently, no parent thinks their kids have enough experience to make good decisions in life. And you know what? You're right. You're right. I mean, isn't it true? Now, I know. Our students over here are going, but we do, we do, we do. Let me tell you how you get experience. You get experience by making decisions, by making good decisions. How do you learn to make good decisions? You make bad ones. So essentially, you need to help your kids hurry up and make bad decisions so they can learn to make good decisions and get some experience in life. No, that's not exactly the way we want to do things right. But, but you get the feeling, you right? That Solomon, he doesn't know everything that he needs to know. So David wants to set his son up for success. And I'm just going to stop for a minute and say, if you're a parent, this is what I think you should do. I think you should set your children up for success. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily give them a lot of money, but you may need to give them a lot of wisdom. And money probably is part of it. You've seen these little license plates that people put on front of their RVs. It says, we're spending our kids' inheritance right? I get that. But your kids need your wisdom. And I've talked to older people and they've said to me, I don't know why God has left me alive this long. All my friends are dead. You know, I, I can't do anything anymore. I can't serve anymore. I can't make any more money. Well, let me tell you why. Every year God gives you is to help the next generation. Every year of life that God gives you is to help the next generation. And you say, well, when can I start? Well, here's the thing I really think is cool in our church. Our high schoolers help mentor our middle schoolers. Because if you're in middle school, you think people in high school know everything there is to know. And our young adults actually mentor our high schoolers. Because if you're in high school, you think somebody who is a young adult out on their own, has their own place to live out from underneath their parents' house, you think they must have it all together. 
I heard no over here. <laughs> okay, okay, but here's, here's the reality. Here's the reality. There's always a generation below you that's looking for wisdom. Do you have any wisdom to share? Especially financial wisdom. I'm going to tell you something real interesting. In, in all my years of study, high school, college, graduate school, I had one class on personal finance. One. And that was an elective class. We don't teach our kids. We're not setting them up for success. And part of the reason, I think, is because so many parents feel like they are not successful financially. So if you're a parent, I'm not telling you to, to try to amass a fortune. I'm trying to tell you, have some wisdom about how you use your money. Now, there's a second thing that's going on in the passage. David says, this is not something casual. This is a great work. He, this isn't just a house for a king. This is a palace for God. This is God's temple. You know, he wants God's house to be the best place in town. God deserves your best. But I want you to think beyond that. The only investment you will ever make in life that lasts forever is when you invest in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus actually told us. In Matthew 6, 19, he said, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Only what you invest with God lasts forever. There was a man in the 1920s named Pat Neff. He was the governor of Texas. He'd made a fortune in the oil business. He'd made a fortune uh, ranching. And naturally then he turned to politics, was elected governor. And at the height of his wealth, he gave a Baptist university, Baylor University, a million dollars. Imagine what that was worth in 1920. And then the Great Depression hits, 1929. And Pat Neff lost his oil fortune, lost his ranch. He lost all his money. And one day a man came up to him and said, Governor Neff, I bet you wish you had that million dollars back that you gave to Baylor. And Pat Neff replied, everything I kept, I lost. Everything I gave away lasts for eternity. Now this requires you to think a little differently about your life. You've got to think from an eternal perspective. I know people who say, I would really, really, I, I, I give, but I want to give to people. I don't I want to give to an institution like the church. Well, first of all, the church is not an institution. The church is the body of Christ. And second, I know it's a good thing if a family loses their home to fire to give them some money. That's a great thing. But I think you're helping a family there. When you invest in kingdom work, you have no idea how far the money's going to go. I, I obviously, I give tithe and some more to Alistair Baptist Church, right? Uh, yes, because I believe in the mission, and yes, because I'm the pastor. But yes, also because I get to see God do some kingdom things. For example, our Pacala campus has baptized 11 students this year. Yes, thank you for the woo. Now, I don't know the names of all those students. I, 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 I didn't lead them to Christ, but here's what I do know. I, I invested in God's work, and God's changed 11 students' lives because I was able to share in that, and I don't know what God's going to do with one of those 11 students. What if, what, if one of, what if one of them becomes a missionary? 
goes overseas. Hundreds of people, thousands of people come to know Jesus. What if one of them becomes a great writer and, and helps people grow their character because of what they write? You see, I, I don't know. What if, what if one of them is the kind of mom who nurtures their kids in the faith and then one of their children grows up and is the next Billy Graham? See, you don't know, but you can trust. And so what's happening here is an investment in kingdom work. So this is what David has, David has done in verse 2. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. And then he makes this long list of things that he has set aside. Now remember, David is the king. In those days, there's no legislature. So all the tax revenue that comes in, he decides how it's divided. He alone decides the national budget. It was simpler. Think it would ever lead to an abuse? Oh, yes. But in David's case, David has been setting aside for years some of the tax money that's come in and said, this is going to be to build a temple. He has planned for this. And remember, David already knows that he is not going to live to see it built. When you invest in God's kingdom, you may not live to see the results, but that doesn't mean the results won't be there. I think one of the cool things about heaven if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you get there, you will see the impact of everything you have done for Jesus, including the impact of your giving. How cool will that be? And, and by the way, I, I just got to throw this in. Since in heaven there is no time, if you die tomorrow, you will get to heaven and you will see the things that your money will accomplish that have not even happened yet in this time. Whoa. Right? There is a compounding effect that you cannot replicate on earth when you invest in God's eternal work. Now, it's a good time for me to pause and actually remind everybody, you're an eternal being. Even if you're not a believer, you're an eternal being. You are going to live beyond your death, which means if you're not a believer, you ought to think about that a little bit and what that will be like. But as a believer, part of what that means is Am I prepared for heaven? Heaven is going to be the most generous place you've ever been. And you ought to prepare for it. You ought to prepare your character for it. And the more your character lines up with your heavenly father, the more at home in heaven you will be. Now, let me kind of help make this real for you. Let's say that there's a man, this is just fictitious. Let's say that there's a man who, um, he, he, his life is all about comfort. He's got a comfortable job. Lives in a comfortable house, drives a comfortable truck, has a chair called a lazy boy. It's comfortable, right? He's got a comfortable faith. He believes in Jesus. He comes to church sometimes. He will even serve, and occasionally he'll drop a $20 bill in the offering plate. He is comfortable. And then one day he dies, and he goes to heaven, and he thinks heaven is going to be about his comfort. When you hear people say things like, I just can't wait till I get to heaven, I can golf all the time. I just can't wait to get to heaven until I can fish all the time or I can shop all the time. Folks, that's about heaven. Heaven is being about you. It's not like that. The focus in heaven is your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with your heavenly father. It's about relationships. And, and can I just pause and just teach you something about relationships? Every relationship you have that you value will make you uncomfortable. True? I mean, has anybody yet been married and had 40 years of comfortable marriage? 
and, and, and you care about your kids? Don't that, doesn't that relationship make you feel uncomfortable sometimes? You're going to have those hard conversations with them? You've got to challenge them? Yeah. Why do you think your relationship with our Heavenly Father should be different? If you really want that relationship to be healthy, you're going to have to enter into times of discomfort. And there's probably nothing that makes us more uncomfortable than when we talk about being generous. But when you get to heaven, there's a character adjustment. Now, I don't know how all of how this works. And believe me, I know that I'm going to have one. But when you get to heaven, and you, the theological word for it is sanctification, when you finally enter your sancti- final sanctification, there is going to be an adjustment in your character, unlike what a chiropractor would ever dream of giving you, so that you can have a character just like your heavenly Father. So why don't you start preparing for that now? David has gotten this idea that his fortune here on earth is to be invested in the eternal work of his heavenly father. But he's not content to stop there. He goes on, verse 3, besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures. In other words, this is not government money I'm setting aside. This now is what I have earned, what I have been able to accumulate over my lifetime, I give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. David realizes he can do more. When I talk to people, a lot of times they want to talk to me about relationships or how do they fix this problem, that problem. Occasionally, rarely do people want to talk to me about their financial life, but sometimes they do. And sometimes people with a lot of resources will say to me, well, what does it mean to tithe? How do I figure my tithe? And I love what the old preacher once said when he was asked that question. He said, I'm not going to tell you how to figure your tithe because every time I tell you how to figure it, God seems to wind up on the short end of the deal. So, So what does it mean for us to be generous? Well, it's interesting. God teaches us through the Bible that it's a tithe. A tithe is giving 10% of your money. It's real simple. Why did God command us to tithe? Well, I think there are some reasons. Number one, you can't give 10% of your money away without organizing your finances. And most of us, we have disorganized finances. Second, that starts us on the path to generosity. It's a starting point, not a stopping point. And we learn the joy of letting go of something. But then here's the last thing. I think 10% actually represents a significant enough part of our income that we have to ask, what will I do without so that I can trust God with? What will I do without so I can trust God with this 10%? And so that's what David is doing. That's the starting point. Most of us, we can find a way to do more. Uh, when we were in a building campaign, a young single mom came to me and said, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I do give 10%. Now you're asking us to give over and above. I don't have any over and above. What should I do? And it was real tempting for me to say, oh, God doesn't expect you to do anything. But instead, I felt a prompt from the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, why don't you pray about it? That's what preachers say when they don't know what else to say. She says, why don't you pray about it? See what God says. She comes up to me the next Sunday and she said, I prayed about it and God answered my prayer. And she didn't look happy about it, but she also didn't look too sad. She had just experienced that God really is real and he really will speak to you. And she said, I prayed about it and God said to me, well, you've got cable TV, do you need it? And she said, I realized I really didn't. 
So we're going to do without cable TV for a year and give that money to this. It's amazing. I bet, I bet there's something in your life that you could actually let go of that would increase your generosity. Now, David is doing something else. He's not only realizing he can give more, he is declaring this to the assembly. Now, why do you think he's doing that? Do you think he's doing it so everybody can go, oh boy, David, he is a generous guy. I don't think so. I think David is doing this because he knows that whenever somebody stands up in front of a group of people and talks about generosity and is encouraging them to be generous, there is a natural defensive attitude. People want to know, okay, are you buying what you're selling? It's something as simple as, I remember going to buy a Dodge minivan and turned out my salesman drove a Ford. Really? Okay. So maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're looking and saying, hey, do you really believe this claim? Now, some of you have heard me tell this story before. And so if you have, uh, hang, hang with me and let me just tell it again. And those of you who haven't heard it, I want to tell you my own generosity journey. Uh, I was not naturally a generous person. I think it has a lot to do with being the youngest child. And back in the days when mama fried chicken and you bought the whole chicken and had to cut it up, that meant there was not much left over for me. So I, I wanted to hold on to everything. But I was going to be a pastor, right? And I knew that even when I pastored 35 people, I knew that there were, and nobody was supposed to know what we all gave, but I knew that they knew. So I knew that if I wanted to keep my job, I needed to give 10%. So is this not a pure motive or what? I mean, I'm giving 10% so I can keep my job. It's pretty shallow, isn't it? Uh, I did this in another service, and somebody said amen right there. Uh, I was fearful. I was, I was actually kind of greedy, but I gave. I was the definition of a grumpy giver. So uh, when we began to do the whole relocation thing about 20 years ago, um, Gina and I were in our 30s. God was doing a great work. We knew we wanted to be part of it. We didn't have any money except what we had been given uh, for our kids' college education. And we both felt very strongly that God wanted us to participate, and we felt like God was telling us to give that money. So we're going to give the money we save for our kids' college education um, to the building project. So we did. And I, I'm not going to tell you I was joyous about it, but I was getting there. Now, this story unfolds over about 10, 18 years. So when we made that decision, it was about uh, 1999, 2001, and our kids were like 11, 9, and 6. Fast forward. 2007, 2008, it's time for my son to go to college. He gets into Duke. How are we going to afford this? We gave some of that money away. We, we had piled up some more money. I mean, we had saved, but nothing close to it. And then it gets a scholarship. Wow. God provided. Two years later, my daughter goes to school. She gets into Chapel Hill. She's very smart. They didn't offer any scholarship help. But if you send one to Duke, how do you turn another one down for Chapel Hill? So I said, okay. Now, let me detour a little bit so you can understand the story. So my grandfather has this ranch. Uh, my grandfather dies. They had put the ranch in this business entity, and they had divided up the shares so they cut the inheritance tax. And I owned like 0.09% of the ranch. 
And the day we moved Hannah into her freshman dorm, my brother called me and told me that they had sold my grandfather's ranch and my little percentage was enough to pay for her four years at Chapel Hill. Okay, time for the third one to go. She goes to Clemson. Um, by the way, I'm an SEC guy. All my kids go to ACC schools. So she goes to Clemson. She gets a full scholarship, uh, except her living expenses. Okay, we can take care of that. And I got these church consulting gigs. They just came in out of the blue. And all of a sudden, I, I've got a couple of opportunities for two years to go down, do the church consulting gigs. They pay for her living expenses while she is at Clemson. And as soon as she graduated, my church consulting side hustle dried up. I know, you kind of listen to that and say, oh, that sounds like a really good preacher story. And no, it's, it's a really good God story. I've told that story before, and I've had a couple of people come up to me after and say, my granddaddy didn't have a ranch. Listen, <laughs> I know not everybody's granddaddy had a ranch, but here's what I want you to know. You've got something, and God will take care of you. If you trust what God tells you to do, even if it seems like a foolish thing to do, you can trust God will provide for you. I've seen it. I've lived it. And along the way, God changed my heart. And I went from being a grumpy giver, I wouldn't say I'm all the way to generosity, but I've come a long way. I enjoy it now. I enjoy seeing how God's going to take care of me. I think you will too. So David tells this story just to say, hey, I want you to know I am buying what I'm selling. And then David finishes all this out. He tells what he's going to give, and it's a pretty impressive list. And then he finishes out with this. Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Literally, what he's saying is, who's willing to fill their hand for God? And I want you to get the mental picture. Everybody's wearing this leather bag, and it's got money in it. So David is saying, who's willing to reach into their leather bag and pull out money and say, I'll set this apart for God? And so look at the people's response. Verse 6, then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. Now, we talked about this last week, but I just want to say it again. Preachers and churches should never coerce people into giving. You and I both heard giving sermons through the years that sounded like the preacher was going to beat it out of you with a stick. No, that is not what we're to do. We're to give people opportunities. We're to teach, offer God's wisdom, God's truth. But you got to be willing. And that's what these people were. And they knew that temple for the next hundred, hundreds of years, several centuries, would be a place where people could come and actually worship the Lord. They wouldn't see it, but they still invested. And the result of their giving, look at verse 9. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Dude, what's going on here? When you see a group of people rise up for God and be generous, people rejoice. They say, yes, these people actually got it, got it right. Do, do you know what it means to rejoice? Do you know what it means to rejoice together? If you're a Gamecock fan, you know. 
Some of you thought I was forgot, right? That I, no. Don't dish it out if you can't take it. I get it. And we want to make 2021 our finest hour of generosity. And we want to do this not so that we can have a big name, not so we can brag, but so God's work can be done. And just imagine the joy that we're going to have when God meets all of our needs, when God moves in the lives of his people and all of our needs are met for his work. Now, there's one more verse I want us to look at. It's not a verse that we read earlier. David follows up this whole litany of giving and this whole record of giving by offering a prayer of thanks. And there's a a verse in the prayer that I just think defines generosity. Look at verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. You know what David's saying? Who am I? David could have said, hey, I'm the king. I'm going to be generous. But he doesn't. He realizes he could have just been a shepherd boy. You ever look at everything God's given you and say, why did God give me all this? And David says, look at these people. These were slaves a few generations ago. Look what God has done for us. I I want you to realize that everything you have, God has given you for a reason. It's not just an accident. It's not because you were such a good person or you were better than somebody else. So why did God give you what he gave you? To leave a legacy. Which means you have to look at everything that God gave you and ask yourself, why did God give me this? Why did God give me this? My dad, my biological father, uh, who died when I was uh, very young, last truck he bought with a 1960s Willis Jeep. It's really interesting because right before I came into this service, I just checked my email real fast because I'm a ridiculously obsessed with it, Right. And so I checked it, and I got, a, I got a, an email from a guy who grew up in our community, and he actually remembers that truck. And he says, I remember when your dad got that truck, and he pulled it up to the corner store and, and showed it off, and everybody just thought it was the definition of the truck that everybody wanted to have. 1960 Willis Jeep. Let me tell you how tricked out this truck was. It had a heater. <laughs> Four-wheel drive. I mean, it was... A, it, <laughs> I look at it now, it, it had two, three knobs on the whole dashboard. You know, a vinyl seat, that was it. That was it. And that was the tricked out truck. I look at my truck. My truck's seven years old, right? But I tell you, I got air conditioning. Even better, last few days, I've got heated leather seats. Oh, that's nice. I've got buttons in my truck, I don't even know what they do. Now, why did God give me my truck? Was it because I'm such a good pastor? (laughs) Of course not. The only reason I can figure out why God's let me have the truck that I have is he loves me. He says, Clay, enjoy it. I mean, I want you to understand, it's okay. God has given some of us some things that he says, I just want you to enjoy this. It's okay. Then I look at other things in my life, and I think, why did God give me this? I go to my barn where I've got all my tools, and I look at all my tools, and I say, why did God give me all these tools? And then it hits me. I've got two son-in-laws. One, one can do anything. He's in construction. He can build anything. The other one, not so much. 
I think God gave me some of my tools so that when my daughter and son-in-law have a house and they need some projects done, I can go and help. Because my son-in-law, he can't do nothing. (laughs) He graduated from Georgia. (laughs) Okay, Foster, if you're watching, I'm sorry. It was just too good a joke to pass up. I look, at, I look at all my books, and you know, I kind of got a thing for books, and uh, I quit counting at 4,000, and, <laughs> and, uh, and I think, why, God, why don't you give me all these books so I can share wisdom with you? And I just go through my house. I think about all these things. Now, I, I admit, I haven't come up with an answer for everything, but I tell you, the exercise is real important. God, why don't you give me this amount of money? Why don't you put this amount in my retirement? God, why did you give me what you gave me? See, only then can I think, do I really get a picture of what it means to leave a legacy? Now, now I, I want to kind of confront you with something that's maybe a little uncomfortable. Why is this so important? Why is it so important to think about leaving a legacy? Because here's the truth. You're all going to die. Right? That's a happy thought. But, What's going to happen after you die? Well, if you're not a believer, I think you ought to think about it. You say, well, I don't think anything happens after you die. Be intellectually honest enough, at least, to consider the possibility that something may happen after you die, and are you prepared for that? If you are a believer, then you believe after you die, you will go to heaven, and you will meet Jesus, and it will be this amazing experience like we've already discussed. I want you to think about this question. Five minutes after you die, what will you wish you had given away? Because when you die, how much will you leave? All of it. Back to John Rockefeller. You may not know this about him. He does have sort of a checkered history with a lot of uh, business dealings that were ruthless. I'm not going to pretend that John Rockefeller was a was a saint of a man, but here's what he did get right in his life. At 15, he was baptized. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. And throughout his life, he did seem to try to live according to the teaching of Scripture. It was uneven, like all of us. But part of it that he really got right was being generous. Uh, He started uh, when he first got his first job, he got paid $300 a year, if you can believe that. He gave 6% of his income away, and by the time he was 20, he was giving 10%, a tithe. And as he began to make more and more money, he began to give more and more money away. And he gave to churches, he gave to colleges, he gave to foundations, a couple of things you may not know. Um, modern medical education for doctors and nurses was really funded and financed by the Rockefeller Foundation that he established. John Rockefeller, more than any other person, is responsible for the standardization of medical education in the United States. He would fund schools. People would come to him, ask for money, and he would consider the request. Uh, the school that I went to for graduate school, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, was facing a financial crisis in the uh, early 1880s. And our president, James Pettigrew Boyce, from Charleston, went to New York City where Rockefeller was living, asked him for a gift. Rockefeller gave him $100,000 with a condition that he not 
use Rockefeller's name. And so the very first building that the seminary had was called New York Hall. Wasn't named after Rockefeller, it was named after where he lived. And I just want you to think about that $100,000 investment that Rockefeller made, it helped lay the foundation to educate literally thousands upon thousands of ministers, pastors, missionaries, church staff that have done kingdom work for God. Talk about a return on investment. It's estimated that Rockefeller gave away $600 million. And so if you do that conversion again, uh, $600 million in uh, our day money would be something along the lines of about $250 billion that he gave away. Why was he so generous? Because at age 15, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. He received the gift of eternal life, and, and he knew that everything that God put in his hand was for a reason. In fact, he actually said, God has given me my money so I can give it away. Now, I don't know. I don't know this, right? But I just speculate. So when John Rockefeller died way into his 90s, and he got to heaven, and of course there was that amazing encounter with Jesus, and he sees all the wealth and splendor of heaven. About five minutes after he died, what do you think John Rockefeller wished he'd given away? Maybe all of it? What's going to be your financial legacy? The time will come, I think, for you and for me. When we realize we leave it all, only what we invest with Jesus lasts forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, think about this. It's never comfortable to talk about this, but your word is so clear. Help us, everyone, think about our financial legacy. Even people who are not believers, God, speak to them, but especially those of us who follow Jesus. Deliver us from the idea of just getting more and more and more. Help us think about living a generous life, leaving that kind of a legacy behind. And I want to pray especially for people who don't know Jesus. God, somehow, I know your Holy Spirit can work. And today, would you give them the opportunity, speaking into their hearts, to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. I ask all of this in Jesus' powerful name.